As just an average Joe who's never made a lot of money off of a given investment, uh, a lot of people are not sort of psychologically equipped for those kinds of economic gains. You start to wonder if if the money's really real. You start to, you know, when you have an investment that's gone 50 or 100x or whatever, um, you start to think about a bird in the hand and two in the bush and like, is this real? I should probably... And then the other trap that I, I'm especially prone to is just this binary thinking of not just like sell some, but just like, oh, I got to get out. I you know sell all of it. And that is such a trap. Hey, everybody. This is the High Hash Rate Podcast. I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. And this podcast is just two plebs getting high and talking about Bitcoin, life, and the absurdity of the fiat world. Our guests don't necessarily get high with us, and you don't have to either. But it helps. All right, everybody, welcome back to High Hash Rate. Uh, today is, oh, first of all, let me start by saying that in this podcast, we don't necessarily talk enough about the technical aspects of Bitcoin. We don't necessarily talk about uh, self-custody, although we encourage it, and maybe we should more. So today we've got uh, Seed uh, from Seed Signer uh, to talk to us a little bit more about self-custody, the importance of self-custody, ways that you can self-custody, and different security and privacy practices. So really excited to have Seed on here. Seed, how are you doing? I'm great. How about you? Doing great. Um, you know, I I listened to a few of your interviews that you've done in the past. And I, so one of the few, one of the things I usually start by asking is, you know, how you found Bitcoin and, and what was your journey um, from that point there. So I guess I'll, I'll let you uh, give a brief introduction to yourself and maybe start with, you know, your first uh, touch point with Bitcoin. Right. Um, so uh, I am, uh, I'm a NIM online, but I go by the, Nicknamed Seed Signer, and uh, like thirty second, I don't know, elevator pitch for why am I on this podcast? <laughs> I created uh, an open source software project that lets people create um, the functional equivalent of a hardware wallet from off the shelf parts. Uh, that's primarily aimed at cold storage, and we're talking like uh, long term cold storage, cold storage. Primarily multi-sig, we lean definitely heavily in favor of multi-sig. Um, but yeah, that's what I do. And I have kind of an interesting uh, backstory in terms of Bitcoin. So I was uh, a police officer for 15 years. And for 12 of those years, I was uh, assigned to a digital forensic crimes unit. So uh, basically a forensic lab where it was my job to take up our computers, take up our cell phones try to extract data from them and then see if they contain evidentiary data that supported or refuted uh, criminal accusations or, you know, some sort of, served some sort of investigative purpose. Um, and I first heard about Bitcoin actually at work. It was in either late 2012 or early 2013. Um, and it was kind of the worst possible time to start paying attention to Bitcoin because the price was just going up and up and up. And uh, there was another examiner in the forensic lab who was working a case of uh, a local kid who had gotten like a gaming rig for his birthday or Christmas or something like that. And it and it was an expensive computer that had two GPUs that you you know used to play. Uh, I, I don't even know. I, I'm not big into first person shooters, so I don't know what the 
the game of the time would have been Call of Duty, maybe or something. <laughs> that might even be a console yeah. game only. I don't know. Uh, so anyhow, instead of playing, you know, whatever first-person shooter you would play with a a computer like that, he was mining Bitcoin, which you could still do pretty competitively uh, back at that time with GPUs. It was just kind of uh, FPGAs were sort of the transition from GPUs into what we now call ASICs. Um, and ASICs were starting to emerge, but still very new. Anyhow, so this kid's you know, reasonably profitably mining Bitcoin, and he's taking the Bitcoin that he's mining, turning around and going onto the Silk Road and ordering uh, marijuana, which he has shipped to his doorstep. And then I'm guessing he breaks that down into smaller uh, uh Portions takes it to school and is making a nice little side hustle selling weed. Um, of course, the school administration eventually finds out and they get the police involved. And that is how his computers and other stuff made it to our forensic lab. So this other, this was a my case. It was another examiner in the lab and it was kind of over, you know, water cooler talk. But he's saying, yeah, I got this case. It involves this thing called Bitcoin. This kid's using to buy drugs online. I have no idea what it is. And that is what sent me down the rabbit hole of just, you know, first Googling, you know, wh- what is this thing? What does it require so much compute? <laughs> How can you use it to right. buy something from the other side of the world? All kind of the usual questions. So uh, this was probably, there was probably a lot of other police departments and federal and, you know, law enforcement agencies that were getting their first experience with Bitcoin around this time. From your experience, can you tell me like how how did law enforcement agents receive learning about Bitcoin? Obviously, it sent you down a rabbit hole and made you a Bitcoiner. Did is that kind of the general experience, or is there a lot of guys like, oh, this is this is bad. We gotta stamp this out. Yeah, I, I can't speak for everybody, but I, I will say I was in a really unique role where I was at. So um did digital forensics for like twelve years. The first I had a little bit of a background in computers, more of like a generalist sort of background. And what, it, what I'm trying to get at is that the people that I'm working with at the Forensic Lab or that I did work with at the Forensic Lab are pretty hardcore geeks. Um, I used to call the Forensic Lab kind of the land of misfit cops because you would end up there because maybe you weren't the most, <laughs> the, 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 you're a little bit of a nerd. Like, you know, you don't, necessarily always fit in with the other alphas um so some of us were predisposed to it and i i i think everyone else in the forensic lab within a year or two of me finding out out, out about it was either mining bitcoin or had bought some bitcoin so they were paying attention um wow. but i would say probably most cops who didn't have you know the the technical background that we did you know, might have had what was the mainstream perception at the time that Bitcoin was used for illicit activity, you know, on the dark web and, and Silk Road sure. and, and other kind of dark net markets. But not, I don't know, we were uh, maybe a little anomalous in that way. So this was your this is your first uh, touch point with Bitcoin as a, you know, in your job. Were there subsequent um, where you were times where you crossed paths with somebody using Bitcoin for criminal activity or anything like that? I, I'm i trying to think. I don't think I ever had a case that I personally worked on that involved Bitcoin. Um, Interesting. It, when the, 
when the local U.S. Attorney's Office kind of found out over time that it was something that I was engaged with and curious about, I was, you know, called sometimes or asked to uh, consult on different cases that might have involved Bitcoin. But also my role uh, uh, was primarily investigating crimes against children. So I worked with um, not just my local police agency, but um, state and federal agencies to kind of during the time that I was uh, coming up in forensics, I guess you'd say there was an explosion of child pornography that started with Napster and like, uh, you know, the, the dawn of peer-to-peer file sharing that then transitioned into LimeWire and the Nutella network and then BitTorrent and, you know, other file sharing platforms. So at that time, there was kind of this explosion of child exploitative material on the internet. And the, the three-letter agencies, as well as state and local police departments, were kind of in this reaction mode of trying to figure out how to investigate these crimes effectively and choose which ones are most important because you, you, you can't, you know, investigate all of them. Um, right. But, yeah, anyhow, I think I digressed a bit there. No, yeah. Uh, I do of, want to touch on that later, but yes, continue, Dan. Yeah, uh, kind of aside from the self-custody solution that somebody might choose to secure their Bitcoin. Maybe you as a, as a forensic expert can also explain a little bit more about there are um, so many other ways that you can dox yourself as using Bitcoin, connecting to nodes, interacting with the network that don't necessarily expose private keys or expose your balance, right? But just letting outside potential observers know that you are interacting with this network or if they were to get a hold of your computer they could find you know maybe easy stuff like they could find a sparrow wallet or a bitcoin core on your laptop what are some other things that maybe people don't think about enough that they're kind of overlooking when they're trying to maintain their privacy but they're kind of focused more on like their cold storage solution and forgetting other things I think it's just, we all get spam email or marketing emails from companies that we engage with, you know, in various ways, whether it's to not just to buy a hardware wallet, but to just, you know, maybe you purchase Bitcoin, maybe you signed up for a newsletter that's related to trading or macro or something like that. Um, your Twitter persona, your social media posts. And I don't think necessarily everybody has to worry. I don't think, I think we're getting to the point where involvement with bitcoin is is we're not quite there yet but eventually i think it's going to be more of the norm than the exception that you know people in some financial way hold bitcoin um but to get back to your original question i all of the marketing emails and and what a lot of uh folks out there don't realize is that um companies uh there's two kind of degrees of legal proof uh or thresholds of of uh, documents that can be served to companies to produce information. And the first is um, a subpoena. And for subpoenas, you can get a surprisingly amount of, surprisingly extensive amount of data that includes, um, you know, user account information and really all sorts of information that's just tracked by a platform. Maybe when you first sign up, they uh, log an IP address, maybe your most recent IP address that you used, the email address you may have used to sign up for the service, any sort of you know, legal name you might have provided, a birthday, all this kind of stuff can be acquired with um, a subpoena that's not even 
required to have a judge sign off on a subpoena. It's something that a prosecutor can issue um, with a certain amount of just cause. And then, of course, search warrants, the line that search warrants cross is that's where you get actual, you know, customer data or user data. So let's say for like an email service provider, they might have, they might, you know, give you the email address, the name that was used when the email address was created, maybe some IP addresses and stuff. But to get actual email content, you have to have a search warrant, which is a higher degree of, of, um, you know, legal investigative interest or, you know, legit investigative um, proof that something's going on. Um, but it's interesting and, and certain, you know, types of emails and, and, and OPSEC are more valuable than others. I think, you know, if you're, you know, BTC guy on Twitter or something like that, I, I don't think you're putting yourself out there at tremendous risk, but say, you know, I purchased uh, a ledger hardware wallet. I don't know if it was like 2015 or something like that. And I didn't two, three years later, I, I don't remember when it was, but Ledger had an issue where their customer database became compromised and, and some significant portion of their customers had disclosed their you know name, their uh, purchase uh, payment card information, the address that Home maybe address. the device was shipped to. Um, you know, pretty surprising, you know, concerning stuff. And yeah, that, that I, was, I was say, one of them. Yeah, I was too, and Me too. that puts you at that puts you at much more risk because now you know if you're still using that ledger, you could be getting targeted spear phishing attacks in your in your email box that reference that purchase and maybe give you just enough information to get you to click a link or do something else that's stupid, you know. Or we start talking about you know the the five dollar wrench attack showing up at somebody's uh, front door with you know an idea that they're engaged with Bitcoin. Right. So I. Yeah, right. Can, can I just interject with a stupid question? That all, what's what, what mean, is the what's the time frame on a on a subpoena? Mm. So a subpoena is served, and then what stops a company from like just dumping all of their data or just sort of getting rid of all that evidence? This is always something I've, I've wondered about. That is, it, as far as I understand, it's based on the the policy of the company. I I I, I don't know that many companies are required to have a certain retention policy for information. Um, but most of them do have some sort of standard practice retention period uh, for information. But um, it's it's part of this. Uh, I, I didn't write a lot of subpoenas or search warrants. I was more in the investigative, give me the computer and I'm going to tear it apart kind of thing. But it's part of this dance that goes on between um the authorities that are investigating crime and the companies that are that are uh, there are varying degrees of of uh, there are varying degrees of compliance with companies. Some some companies will go out of their way to help law enforcement, and other companies have a different ethos, which is entirely understandable from my seat. Where you know they only want to turn over what they absolutely have to to satisfy the legal requirement. Um, what, what right. was and you, it, it's worth keeping in mind that that a company that maybe a Bitcoin company, for example, that has the kind of ethos that line up with yours that are you know not super compliant. A lot of those companies, regardless of that, they outsource a lot of their marketing and campaigns to companies like HubSpot and Salesforce and, and these mm, other right. companies. And I think that's actually what 
how Ledger got hit. It was one of their partners that had that data that was hacked. So it was a lot of customer order data through an e-commerce platform. It wasn't their, you know, it wasn't like their private keys or their any oh, particular right. information right, right. about their wallets. It was it was just their personal information. So even if a company that you quote unquote trust, even though you shouldn't t- trust another company, um, if they outsourced it to like HubSpot, HubSpot got hit, I think, multiple times with uh, like a, a nefarious employee leaked specifically crypto, Bitcoin related companies data to hackers. So it's, um, you know, there's there's a lot of attack vectors there. And it hasn't just been Ledger, right? We've had some other companies that have, you know, I I, I don't want to name any names because I, I can't, <laughs> I think I can think of a couple, but I don't know for sure which ones you know i've also had leaks ledger's kind of the one that everybody points to but some other companies have had uh, those kind of email uh marketing email kind of database links um right yeah yeah it's, uh, so, it's a problem dan I, I know you're probably burning with a question uh, but i just want to keep on this digital forensics topic uh just a little bit longer so i'm, I'm curious as to see it i'm curious to curious as why why digital forensics? How you got into that? I have always been kind of a little bit of a nerd. Um, sometimes in my life more than others. But, uh, you know, I I remember, I'll date myself here, going to grade school in the 80s and we had computer class and there was like a room full of Apple IIEs that, you know, you got to go to probably a couple times a week and we just played you know, silly games like Lemonade Stand and Where in the World is Carmen San Diego. And uh, it was funny. I remember there being like two color computers because the school couldn't afford like more than two at that point. So every week you would rotate and like if it was your lucky week, you got to sit at one of the color computers. Um, but just experiences like that. So when I went away to college, you know, I had a part-time job working in the computer lab at college. And that primarily was like reminding people to save their papers they were writing um, and to help them troubleshoot printers when they were working. So not super deep technical stuff. And then um, uh, I have a bachelor's degree in English, but after that, I went back to school um, uh, when I was working actually as a private security guard at a local university. And if you work at the school, you can take classes for free. So I took... um, technically like an undergraduate certificate program in management information systems. And you kind of get a taste of everything from, you know, the basics of networking to database design, um, systems design analysis. I took two semesters of Java. So it kind of gives you this uh, little bit mile wide inch deep sort of glimpse into technology. And that's, then I got bit by the law enforcement bug. Um, and went into that, but the the chief at the agency I worked at knew that I had a background in computers. And when he heard about this uh, digital forensic unit that was looking to potentially add an examiner, it seemed like a natural fit. But I have to tell you, like when you go into a forensic lab like that, being having more of just like a generalist slash end user perspective, the first two or three years are like drinking through the fire hose because you have to very quickly get to a point where you're. Uh, capable of explaining everything from binary counting to Windows registry artifacts to how the how the mobile you know mobile phone cell network works to a jury you know in open court. So y- you have to go. It, 
what I think about digital forensics is it helped me develop this skill of being able to quickly um, develop a mental model for how something works and use that to test and explain, you know, expected behavior. Does, you know, because when you're doing forensics, if you're doing it well, like you spend so much of your time just setting up test systems to validate the artifacts you're finding. Does clicking on this link really create, you know, this uh, entry in, you know, the Windows registry or in a potential database or on this phone? Does opening this um, create a new, you know, flag on the file that it was, you know, checking timestamps and all that kind of stuff? So it's a lot of, just a lot of in-depth in testing. Anyhow, yeah. So you've got a lot of experience and training on, you know, technical computer science types topics. But, you know, at least the cops that I've met or that I know in my life, one of the core aspects of their training and it's, it's fundamentally drilled in is like attention to detail, being able to take somebody's uh, testimony and record it, explain it, being able to um, be very conscious of chain of custody of evidence or of anything like that. So you've got all this technical training, all this uh, training that kind of teaches you to build these mental models, determine expected behavior, but then all these, all this attention to detail, very focused. Um, so I, I assume that when you went down this rabbit hole around 2013, you mentioned that the price was kind of shooting up at the time. So maybe you got really into the economics side of it. Or was your the beginning of your rabbit hole a very technical one? Were you digging through the code or or kind of trying to understand how the network worked or just how it would make you money? No, no, it was very focused on number go up when I was first paying attention <laughs> to Bitcoin. Same. I was yeah. uh, so I was at a point in my life where I had two small children and another one on the way, and we had uh, we had purchased a house and like a lot of people do when they purchase, you know, a second house, they stretch a little bit thinking they're going to grow into the mortgage payment. And I, I, I mentally don't, I'm not comfortable with debt. <laughs> and so I was continuously scanning for uh, ways that I could, you know, invest money or make some extra money to try to reduce the debt load on our household. So you kind of view Bitcoin through the the lens of your life sometimes, and in, in the beginning, it was definitely, you know, what is this thing, and and what is it going to be worth in six months, a year, two years, that kind of thing. Um, which also everybody, I can't say everybody, but most Bitcoiners have their uh, uh, period of shitcoinery, and mine was was kind of the original generation of shitcoins, <laughs> was uh, like like. Litecoin and Feathercoin and Primecoin and all of these all all of these other projects that took like one or two facets of Bitcoin and tweaked them a little bit differently, and it was a big speculative kind of kind of game. But I have to say, like I I learned a lot about um, how assets trade and hype cycles and um, you know some of that stuff. I I'm not a big technical analysis or or trading person, but it's, it is helpful to understand, you know, how an order book stacks up and what the difference is between, you know, uh, and a limit order and a market order and that kind of stuff. But in the um, end, the importance of liquidity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, right, right. So 
at a, at a certain point, you, I assume, your the amount of Bitcoin you had started to be worth a lot more money, uh, more and more money. And then, it, at least from my perspective, I was very loose with my custody solution at the beginning. You know, a lot of it was on Coinbase, for example. But as it became worth more and more money, and as I expected it to become worth more and more money, I started to get paranoid about, oh God, like I don't, I can't get hacked, I can't lose this. How how am I going to secure mm. this for the future? How, what was your, you know, custody journey like? Did you have or lose coins on Mount Gox, for example? Like, what was that? How did you get to the point where you were doing quote unquote the right thing to secure your Bitcoin? I. I don't know if you can say it was lucky or not, but um, Coinbase became a thing in, I think, the late spring or summer of 2013. And I had been looking at Mt. Gox, but it always just seemed kind of like wiring money and it just it didn't feel right. If I had done it a little bit you know, earlier or whatever, like it could have turned out very well. But I don't know, Mt. Gox just didn't... Um, didn't uh, it, it just seemed like there was too much friction to get uh, fiat dollars into the, the thing. So I, I just didn't pursue it. And Coinbase was kind of opening up. So I was probably an early Coinbase user. And um, actually early on, I did a little bit of like P2P trading, not trading, but buying and selling Bitcoin on local Bitcoins. And it was that was a very sort of... Uh, very useful way to start getting familiar with how to receive Bitcoin and send it, and, you know, that stuff. But to get back to your question about security, that's kind of where, you know, some of my background comes in um, with the forensic lab and understanding, you know, what a private key is and how to keep it separated from devices where it could somehow become, you know, leaked or discovered by the larger internet. And so... My first, I, I probably didn't get serious about self-custody until like 2014. Or 15. Um, you know, it, it was, there were probably some coins sitting on Coinbase for a while back then. And then I, I probably had some on Bitcoin Core too, because, you know, I, I remember doing a lot with Bitcoin Core before, you know, harder wallets became widely available. So what I used was uh, a website that a lot of people probably heard of called bitaddress.org. And they had a GitHub repo, so it was open source. And you could download an offline version of this website. After you download it, you, of course, could uh, hash the download to make sure that you got what the developer was intending for you to get. And then you take that offline copy of the website and boot up a computer in a live Linux environment, ideally one that is of course, not connected to the internet, so something like Tails OS. Um, and you would boot into this uh, live Linux environment, open that website, and what that would do, would it would generate private, private and public key pairs for you. And so, you know, I bought a, a second USB printer that I never again used for anything else and attached to this, this offline computer and printed out public and private key pairs. And... I went through like two cycles of this because I wanted to test to make sure I would be able to, you know, recover the Bitcoin after I'd use this tool. And then like after everything worked the way it was supposed to, you do like the real run where you start moving actual, you know, the Bitcoin you're intending to store into these uh, receive addresses. But like that was great uh, OPSEC for the time, I think. 
But then in 2014, I think, uh, also what happened was Trezor came out onto the market with, um, Trezor's probably the first widely publicly available hardware wallet, if not just the first hardware wallet. Super, super credit to them because I think of Bitcoin cold storage in kind of like different eras. And this first era was just Bitcoin core and maybe paper wallets. And the second era was definitely kicked off by uh, uh, Trezor with these dedicated devices that were designed just to safeguard your private key and keep it, you know, keep it from being accessed by any sort of malicious process or anything like that. Um, but that is where my uh, my Bitcoin stayed for kind of through the long bear market of 2014, 15, 16 was on eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper with public-private key pairs, basically in my underwear drawer. Um, I think I had a second copy at the bank or something. But uh, over time, I just became more and more uneasy about that setup because part of it is just the offset considerations of, uh, you know, could somebody be snooping in my safe deposit box at the bank or could the the hypothetical evil maid have found... uh, these printed sheets of paper in our house and and somehow figured out what they were good for or whatever. I periodically check the balances of the public keys, but still you don't know if, you know, that's absolutely certain or whatever. And so, um, yeah, you, you kind of over time and as Bitcoin was finally, the, the price was recovering throughout 2016. Um, as just an average Joe who's never made a lot of money off of a given investment, uh, a lot of people are not sort of psychologically equipped for those kinds of economic gains. You start to wonder if if the money's really real. You start to, you know, when you have an investment that's gone 50 or 100x or whatever, um, you start to think about a bird in the hand and two in the bush and like, is this real? I should probably. And then the other trap that I, I'm especially prone to is just this binary thinking of not just like sell some, but just like, uh. I got to get out. I, you know, sell all of it. And that is such a trap, um, kind of that all or nothing kind of, uh, mentality right. that I think is common among a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I heard you say that, or, you know, that you sold your stack in 2017, uh, your first stack, uh, how long did you regret it immediately? Or did you kind of the way when you you have like the buyer's remorse, you buy something big, you kind of can't sleep that night because of the debt that you've just gotten yourself into. What about with selling the Bitcoin? Did you kind of have that like, oh my God, or did you sell at the top? Oh no. <laughs> no, it had to bring up this painful memory. Uh, no, I, I say that jokingly. Like it was a blessing, but I, I did not by any means sell the top uh, early in 2017, like March of 2017, as the price was creeping past $2,000, which was all-time high territory because previously in December of 2013, I think Bitcoin had topped out at 1200 or something like that. So we're in all-time high territory. I don't know anything at that point about markets and how like once you breach the all-time high, like a lot of assets, you know, kind of have open air above that and they may run a lot further than you would expect them to. Uh, but I had just kind of been through this long bear market, wasn't super confident about my cold storage. And then really the key factor was that at about $2,200, 
the amount of Bitcoin I owned was at the point where we could, if I sold everything, which again, that's that binary thinking, but if I sold everything, I'd be able to legit pay Uncle Sam off for the taxes and then have enough money left over that we'd be able to completely pay off our house, which um, that this was also to provide some additional context. This was also during the time of the fork wars where Roger Veer is splitting off into uh, Bitcoin Cash and there's Bitcoin Satoshi's vision. And on one hand, it's like I can just wait out these forks and I'll have something on every chain and whichever one wins, you know, you can go with that one. But at the same time, I did because of the what I was talking about more about the insecurity about that kind of crazy gain. You know, I, I start to wonder, am I going to lose the ability to pay off my house because some geeks are arguing about parameters and software? And, you know, the, the as these things fork off, is Bitcoin, the original Bitcoin, going to lose its network effect? And kind of, you, know, you, you were, there was a lot of uncertainty at the time uh, if you were there for it. So uh, one day I was at work and I just, for whatever reason, I'm stressed out. And I'm like, the price is climbing and it's starting to falter like 22 or 2300 and um that day i just kind of told my boss i'm going home and luckily i had the flexibility to do that and i went home and took everything out of my closet and started uh transferring bitcoin from uh from the cold storage and the and the paper wallets to the exchange that i was you know registered at at the time <laughs> and very awkwardly once i got everything uh onto the exchange, just very awkwardly started market dumping Bitcoin. And so on that exchange, there's probably this really goofy blip from me, just like dumping all of it, not even, you know, placing smart sell orders or anything like that. It was just like, I was, I was in almost like a panic. And I remember when it was done, you know, when it was done, I saw the fiat balance in the, uh, the exchange account and it was, roughly what I expected it to be. And it was just like an absolute relief. <laughs> like there, the remorse didn't come until later, like for the first you know month or two, it was like honeymoon mode. I, I remember, you know, the next few days I was just on cloud nine. It, it was, it was, and, and it was still like such a blessing. But then as the months sort of wore on through 2017, of course, the prices kept going up and up and up. And you start to have these thoughts about like, Oh gosh, I could have sold everything for two times more or four times more or whatever. And uh um, right. Oh wow. It's to get I remember is a hell of a drug, isn't it? Yeah. I remember somebody asking Laszlo, the pizza guy, about like how he felt about uh having spent, you know, the equivalent of whatever million dollars on a pizza back then, and he just very dryly said it's not healthy to think about those things. <laughs> and I think <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's absolutely true. Um so yeah, so I I use just to kind of follow up, um, huge blessing. I use that time to start to think about transitioning out of you know my career in law enforcement, and started kind of embarking on this what I would call like a rapid period of self growth where I was focused more on what I felt like the skills would be useful to me after uh, I left left work to be a stay-at-home dad, which again, what a huge blessing to be with my children during this point in their lives. So uh, it, it's hard to think about the the gains I missed out on, but if I'm real about it, it was really, and still is, a huge blessing. 
yeah, the, the time that the you gain. get with your family is also the gains that you are not missing just, out on. I was just going to say, you've got a lot oh, of yeah. gains that you can't measure in, uh, in, in dollar values probably very well. Um, and, and I like, think, yeah, the, the, like, you know, to give you some sense of the timing, timing, like four months after I left work, the, the COVID, COVID started. And so being around full time to kind mm. of shepherd my children through that was, was also kind of invaluable. Priceless. Yeah. Okay. Um, just, I, I do want to touch on that just quickly, because it's something that you mentioned much earlier was just that the, um, that when you were first going through your digital forensics, you were encountering all this, uh, the explosion of child pornography, as you put it. Um, but I was, I'm curious as like what the, if you know what the state of that is now, or like, has that been pushed into a different direction? Or I know you left it, you said you left it COVID, but uh, how did that, how did that change? I, I think our society is like in the process of trying to normalize child pornography. I think that's where it stands. Yeah. It um, seems like, yeah. Uh, you know, it's like late stage fiat world or, or however you want to term it. But I think, I think that quote explosion of child pornography, maybe at the time people thought it was somehow going to be con contained, especially the people in law enforcement. And, you know, I, 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 that's not, that's not going to happen. You know, the internet is for better or for worse part of the internet is all about freedom of information and i think mostly that's a tremendous positive but i mean the sad thing is you know prior to the internet if you had you know a mind that you were sexually interested in children you either had to you know do something unspeakable with a child to satisfy that or try to go to some uh, CD pornography store and somehow ask but not ask if they had any child exploitative material, you know, which did exist back then in, in analog format, but it was just the internet's ability to digitize that. And, you know, for kids, unfortunately, that have been abused, like it's a few clicks from, you know, their victimization being shared with thousands of people in far yeah. corners of the globe. It's, it's, it's just, it's so sad. And it part, part of the reason why I, was eager to get out of the job was there there just wasn't a lot of emotional support it was still very much like an old school cops network um whereas what is different these days is, is people who have to deal with that you know material on a day-to-day -day basis there's a lot more uh, awareness even in just the i don't know five or seven years since i stopped there's a lot more awareness about the mental health issues and people mm -hmm. getting access right. to counseling and regular mental health evaluations and stuff like that, which is, which is so important. Um, to shift gears a little bit uh, and go back to kind of the topic of hardware wallets, one of the things that I've encountered numerous, countless times, um, especially with newbies and uh, people who are a little bit less technically sophisticated is kind of understanding what a hard wallet is and what a hard wallet does. And maybe that the, I, the term wallet itself might be a little bit misleading to what, uh, what those actually are. If, if you could explain, you know, simply and briefly kind of what a wallet really is and why it's not probably the best term for, uh, to like, bridge this abstract concept to uh, a real-world product. Right. Wallet was kind of, it's just become such an overused term of the Bitcoin industry because it, it stands now for like 
you know, a piece of software on your phone or a hardware device that you use to store private keys, or maybe uh, another piece of software you use in a laptop that bridges the gap between the Bitcoin network and a device that you use to store private keys. And it, in the beginning, it's like the analogy was obvious. You know, you have a wallet in your pocket and it holds money. Uh, these software and hardware tools kind of kind of hold money is the way that they tried to analogize it. But as you alluded, like it's become kind of this increasingly troublesome term because uh, not all Bitcoin storage use cases deserve the same level of security. And it, it's just, um, yeah. So, but to get back to your question about hardware wallet, what gets at the root, and I'm talking about cold storage here, so this is on-chain uh, Bitcoin storage. The most important thing about hardware wallet is that it's supposed to keep your private keys segregated from the internet and completely offline, such that they're not exposed to uh, an internet-connected computer directly. And if you do happen to type your seed words, obviously you should never do this unless it's some sort of emergency or a disaster recovery scenario, but if you were to type your, your seed words into an internet-connected internet computer or your phone, that takes them from being cold storage um, to a hot wallet or hot storage. Um, so the, the, the whole point of Trezor and every other hardware wallet is to keep your private keys private. That's, that's it. And private meaning segregated from the internet. That's, right. that's, that's the end goal. And most of them do a reasonably good job at that. But when you start thinking about your long-term savings and what kind of value you're protecting and what you think that value might be worth in the future, you know, that's where we get into the nuance of different sort of yeah uh, Bitcoin cold storage techniques. Yeah. And to reiterate something that you kind of just said there, if you or anybody, if you type your 12 or 24 words into a spreadsheet in, you know, Google Cloud or just on your laptop alone and it's connected to the Internet, you now have a hot wallet. Um, those keys are there. They're exposed and they're to varying degrees exposed going forward, even after you, you know, quote unquote, delete them out of the spreadsheet or whatever, and then close it. So that's something to always keep in mind. But, you know, we talked a little bit about a hard wallet. Can you explain how Seed Signer is not really a hard a hardware wallet and kind of what led you to, to build this new solution and kind of what advantages does it uh, give anybody who chooses to build one. Sure. So after uh, I kind of described before how, you know, I, I sold all my Bitcoin and didn't want to think about Bitcoin for a while. Um, in 2018, as you know, the market was coming down and eventually bottomed up, I started averaging back into Bitcoin as I was transitioning out of my out of my career. Uh, it's like a mind virus. It just got a hold of me, and I started listening to the same podcasts and kind of following the same people on Twitter. Except this time, it was more about Bitcoin as a savings tool and kind of I started thinking about the life that my children are going to have and what kind of debt burden, you know, I'm an American, so what kind of debt burden America has as a whole and whether or not the extent of money creation that's going on is sustainable. And so I'm thinking about Bitcoin from a much more ideological sort of a, uh, angle as I started paying attention to it again. So it changes from this is a short-term investment 
to this is going to be a long-term investment because I have a lot of faith and belief in this thing. And probably the majority of whatever Bitcoin I'm able to save, um, barring some sort of personal catastrophe, I'm planning on handing these down to my children. So we're planning for, you know, God willing, if I, you know, live for a while longer, um, years and years of Bitcoin storage. And so as I was coming out of, you know, the, the forensic uh, industry, I was thinking a lot about cold storage. And I was also thinking with my kind of unique background and experiences, uh, what is the kind of cold storage that would allow me to sleep, you know, like a baby at night? So I wasn't worried about, you know, whether somebody was snooping in a safe deposit box or something like that. Um, and so I started digging into whatever the latest advancements in Bitcoin cold storage were at the time. And I came across a podcast that Stefan Levera did with a guy called Michael Flaxman. And he has written this, uh, it's a GitHub, uh, it's it's a document that's housed in a GitHub repo, but it's called, I believe, the 10X uh, Bitcoin Security Guide, something along those lines. And he kind of lays out what are the areas where you can get the most bang for your buck in terms of improving your cold storage security. And I thought a lot of uh, what he had to say was compelling. But what he also kind of alerted me to was that multi-signature Bitcoin storage was coming to uh, getting to a place where it wasn't something that just BitGo was doing and that larger kind of custodians and institutions had access to, but the tools for everyday Bitcoiners to take advantage of multi-sig were becoming available. And one particular such tool he talked about was, uh, I, I would call it a wallet coordinator, um, but it's a piece of software called Spectre Desktop that runs on you know a desktop or a laptop computer. And uh Spectre Shout out to Moritz. Moritz is Moritz is a friend. He was and he he was on this uh, on this podcast. Spectre Waltz. Moritz Moritz is a legend, an amazing Bitcoiner. Um, and Moritz and uh, another guy called Steppen um, Steppen Snigriff were building this thing uh, along with some other open source contributors called Spectre Desktop that allowed you to set up a multi sig wallet that was controlled with. Or, where the private keys were being, you know, used in conjunction with different hardware wallets like a Trezor, like Ledger, um, stuff like that. Actually, one of our uh, our lead contributor, our um, uh, lead developer, I guess you'd say for Seed Center, Keith McKay, was actually the one who did some of the important work that got Spectre Desktop working with the hardware interface that most of the the wallet devices use. Anyhow, so. Multisig appealed to me just intuitively as somebody who has physically helped uh, execute search warrants and gone through people's you know drawers and bookcases. This idea of being able to store um, your Bitcoin in such a way that you can split the the necessary pieces that you need to access the Bitcoin up and put them in different physical places like that's that's such a game changer um, for defenders, uh, people who are trying to secure Bitcoin because. You know, me as a law enforcement officer, like, it's one thing to go through a house and try to find, you know, a hardware wallet or some sort of other private key backup. But if it's part of a multi-sig, like, you start thinking, like, you know, for, first of all, you don't necessarily know, you know, if you do find one hardware wallet, you don't necessarily know it's part of a multi-sig. But even if you do have that information, you start thinking, like, where else in the world could this be? And it's such, it's such a powerful tool that, that 
um, you know, if it comes to it, can help Bitcoiners resist seizure from, you know, uh, uh, government sort of entities, you know, and it's also super valuable if, just for, you know, if you have adversaries who want to steal your Bitcoin that are non-state entities, it's powerful too. So multi-sig was like a big revelation. And then Spectre Desktop also has this kind of side project called the Spectre DIY that is um, the, again, like Seed Center, it's, it, it was the inspiration for Seed Center. It is a uh, hardware device that you can use to create private keys and use to um, set up either single SIG or multi-SIG wallets. And then you, of course, use it to sign transactions. But what, what really intrigued me about the Spectre DIY was this process that it used to communicate between the laptop where Spectre was installed and the DIY were these animated QR codes that didn't you know, communicate the private key from the device to the laptop because that would be pointless but communicated proof that the keys that were needed to spend the money, you know, were, were in possession of the person using Inspector DIY. So it, you would flash these animated QR codes on your laptop screen and you'd read them in with the Spectre DIY with the scanning module. And then you'd uh, review the transaction, you know, on the Spectre DIY. And if you uh, approved it, then it creates a new set of QR codes that you then show to your computer's webcam and to me, it was a revelation. It was like this super elegant solution to traditional hardware wallets and having to plug them into the USB port of your computer, which always made me super uncomfortable given my forensic background. Because um, it's a semi-related note, but like it, let's say a thumb drive gets seized from someone's house and I want to search that thumb drive for data that might be, you know, of relevance to an investigation. Uh just about every forensic examiner uses this thing called a write block that um, is sort of an intermediary between your computer that you use to analyze data and the thumb drive. And it, at the hardware level, enforces that no writes are made to the device that you're um, copying data off of. So that, you know, you, you wouldn't inadvertently make changes that you didn't mean to. But anyhow, so when you're connecting one computing device to another computing device, in forensics, that's sort of a sacred moment, and you want to take care that you're doing it in a controlled, you know, sort of um, measured way that's defensible in court later on. And with hardware wallets, um, if you can update the firmware through that USB interface, if the wrong software is on your computer, then pretty much anything can happen. The likelihood of this happening is really low, but when you get into storing larger amounts of Bitcoin, you start thinking about these things and you just want to eliminate potential attack vectors. So this, this exchange of QR codes is a little clumsy, but it's an extremely uh, low bandwidth kind of way to move data between computers such that, um, you know, when you plug, you know, a USB device into a computer, a lot of things happen very quickly, like it auto mounts and, you know, there could be actual executable code that runs on it. You know, you're, your system starts, you know, looking at it to map the file system out. There's a lot of stuff that happens. And if you kind of understand those things that could be happening in the background, it just gives you pause about USB connected hardware wallets. So this uh, QR code exchange process that I keep going on about for me was like the first time I'd ever sent a Bitcoin transaction or the first time that I'd ever used Lightning. It was like one of those aha 
epiphany moments. And from that moment on, like I was kind of infatuated with this. Um, uh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, um, can you get into the details about, you know, a seed signer and how you might build a seed signer and the components that go into it? Because one thing I can already uh, tell is like one of the the trolls in the comments will be like, why should I buy uh, a Bitcoin custody solution? Or not buy, but why should I use a Bitcoin custody solution uh, made by a cop? I mean, like what what uh what aspects of or how Fair is question. yeah right well, how is seed signer may, how is seed signer uh may, you know what how is it uh, what are the trail. properties that make it that make it um <laughs> that make that not a not a concern we do have right. a lot of and trolls like... on this show yeah. <laughs> I, I will look forward to interacting with all of them on twitter i'm sure uh no um it, that is i my answer is that's the beauty of open source. So we're not creating this kind of closed source black box where you, you have to trust, you know, what what the code, trust the code that we put out there that it's doing what we say it's doing. Uh, I can go into a little bit more of kind of the backstory about SeedSire. Maybe that'll speak to some of these concerns. But um, yeah. yeah, Matt Odell in the beginning constantly referred to me as a spook and maybe that's uh, <laughs> that's uh, worth it. Um, so I, I mentioned Michael Flaxman before to kind of get to where the, the bridge between Spectre DIY and Seed Center. So I started interacting with Michael Flaxman and I also dabble in, in uh, computer-aided design and 3D printing. And I too was excited about the Spectre DIY and it didn't, it was kind of this uh, two or three electronic components that you had to either like tape together or somehow you know, not break. And so there wasn't like a, an enclosure, just a simple box that you could put it in. And Flaxman had put a tweet out about that. And so I designed like what, what might've been the first Spectre DIY enclosure that was super clumsy, but it kept every, everything together and made the device more usable. And I started talking to Flaxman more and offered to send him one. And he was very kind to like chat with me and share some of his ideas. And he at the time had this idea to use a very specific version of the Raspberry Pi Zero called the Raspberry Pi Zero version 1.3 as a device that you could use to securely create uh, Bitcoin private keys that was verifiably offline because this this Raspberry Pi Zero 1.3 doesn't have Wi-Fi, it doesn't have Bluetooth, and you can use it in such a way that there's not even a USB connection you know, to a, another computer or something. So it's, very, it's this very naturally isolated little environment where you can work with private keys. And he had this idea to take one and add, you know, a screen and a few buttons to it. And maybe you could type in seed words that you'd picked at random and be able to calculate the final word of a seed phrase, which acts as a checksum against the words. It's deterministic and it helps you identify, say, you're entering a seed word, seed phrase into a wallet. If you get one of the words wrong, the last word kind of makes the wallet tell you like, whoa, something's not right. You should go back and check what you were doing. Um, so... I was out of law enforcement and I was looking for like something to tinker with. So I bought, you know, these uh, electronic components and I binged watched Python videos on Udemy for a week or two until I knew just enough Python to be dangerous. And I started just with the most basic, you know, can I run the demo software that this, uh, this company makes the screen put out and just get something to appear on the screen, you know, and then like, can I, make the controls do something. Can I put words on the screen? You know, I hammered out a proof of concept of what Flaxman had, 
had described, which was this device that lets you enter seed words and it'll calculate the checksum word for you. And as I was doing that, you know, I'm still enamored with the Spectre DIY, and it dawned on me that if I took, um, if I attached like a three or four dollar camera to this Raspberry Pi, uh, it could basically be a Spectre DIY, but at a lower price point. Now there's some trade-offs because it also has a much smaller screen, but still I'm a cheapskate and it was a little bit of a challenge. So I, I thought like, let's see if we can get this working. So I coded up this super janky, uh, awkward proof of concept that lets you create a private key and then generate the public key that you need to set up a wallet and then actually um, make a spend using that QR exchange process, the same one that, that the Spectre DIY did. And I, I put it out on Twitter and I started talking more about it. And um, I went to the Bitcoin 2021 conference in Miami and made a brief presentation in the uh, on the, the open source dome that year about it. And as it so happened, Keith McKay, who, like I said before, is our, our lead developer, um, was in the audience. And he came up afterwards and I'm an introvert. So I was on this, like, I just did a public presentation and I need to be alone for a while kind of <laughs> thing. And he's excited and wanting to talk more when I was doing kind of a thing, but we, we continued to connect. And even before Keith, uh, there was another guy named Nick who, um, had come across what I'd done and he, he's an actual developer by trade. That's his day job. He's not a Python programmer, but he's super smart. And he had found uh, my GitHub repo, not even like here I am on Twitter trying to like spread the word and like get people interested in this thing I'm building. And he just does like a search on GitHub for Bitcoin wallet or something and finds it that way, which is kind of funny. But he sees it and basically um, I had kind of like taken what I'd done and brought it back to Michael Flaxman and, and been like, look at this thing I built. And he's, you know, a much better coder than me and looked at my GitHub repo and is like, oh my gosh, there is no way I would ever use this thing in its current form. So um, Nick came in, who's, you know, a programmer by trade and started uh, refining the code and cleaning up some of my my uh, spaghetti code. And then Keith came in, who is, who is uh, Python, is his bread and butter. So uh, between the two of them, we've had multiple iterations of our code base, but uh, they're both really smart guys. And this idea of a hardware wallet that doesn't store your private keys, which is kind of the the main value proposition of Seed Signer, uh, started to come alive. And for me, Seed Signer kind of checked all those boxes that I had been uncomfortable about. You know, previously with hardware wallets, in that um, there's no sort of USB uh, connection required, and uh, it's it's the initial versions of Seedsider actually didn't even support single sig wallets because for me it was a multi sig tool. I mentioned I was a cheapskate before. Also, like before that, if you wanted to try multi sig out, even for just a simple like two of three setup, you still have to buy three hardware wallets, and that's you know three, four, five hundred dollars. And so with this one device that doesn't remember your private keys, because it doesn't remember your private key, um, it is it is uh, reasonable to use it to manage multiple private keys. So if you just want to play with multi-sig and start to figure out if it's for you, like it's it's an amazing gateway drug just to see if like, you know, how accessible is multi-sig. 
Yeah. Shout out. First of all, shout out to Keith. I remember when I, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, he did he quit his job to come work on Seed Signer pretty much full time and kind of just live off donations from that. For I, I wouldn't say he quit his job, but for a while he did. Um, we were able to crowdfund donations that got him working on the project nice. for several months in a row. But he, um, uh, I, I think he's public about this. Keith is uh, mostly like a contractor with his programming, mm. so he has sort of a flexible sure. workload where he can um, scale up and scale back uh, his workload depending on you know what his life allows yeah. for, which I'm a little jealous of. But yeah, yeah. One of the things that, uh, whether it's Telegram or on this show or in Twitter DMs, is, is a lot of people message me that I'm a software engineer at Swan, and they want to know how they can get a software engineering job. And one of the things I always do is I always encourage, especially people without any experience, is to find open source projects that they um, that they like, that they care about, that they want to see succeed, and to um, go contribute to those. And you know, I look at the the Seed Signer GitHub repo, and it's you know you've got 82 issues open some as recently as yesterday. So um, if there's you know, anybody out there who wants to, wants to get some experience coding, especially in Python, and they want to contribute to open source, Seed Signer sounds like is a great um, project to contribute to. And it seems like you guys are pretty active on uh, putting the stuff on GitHub for people to come and help solve. Is that uh, yeah. how do they get in touch with, with you guys to learn more about how to contribute? Yeah. A couple of things on that. First of all, we're we're a, a Python primarily project. Um, we have our own uh, custom Linux distribution, but that's kind of uh, a secondary thing. So we're we're a Python project. So even people who are just learning to code, and Python's a very accessible language. Um, so people who are green are still learning. Like it's it, that makes it especially accessible. But I'd also say like we we really try to do a good job of putting resources out there that help people who are interested to start to code onboard themselves into setting up a seed signer that is more of a development environment where they can quickly iterate with changes to code and, um, you know, track bugs and that kind of stuff. But for people, your question about if people are interested, um, our GitHub repo is a great uh, place to start. We try to tag issues there in such a way that they might be like, wow, um, uh, um, inexperienced developer friendly, you know, this would be a good first issue kind of thing. Um, but we also have a very active telegram chat and then a secondary, very active, uh, developer chat. I think there's about 50 people in there. Now there's probably eight to 10 people in there that are super active. And, um, yeah, I've seen developers come in. There are two or three who are really active right now who came in like less familiar with the project maybe even, you know, less experienced programmers. And Keith and there's another uh, guy in there named Jean and Nick are extremely generous with their time and helping, uh, you know, helping people um, engage with the project if they're interested too. Uh, Seed, before I wrap up, and, and thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. And before I give you the opportunity to let people know where they can find out more information about Seed Signer and how they can get started. Uh, for those of, for those out there who are relatively comfortable with self custody, they maybe have a Trezor, a Ledger, a Jade, a Cold Card. Um, how, what level of sophistication, or how, what do you think that they have to 
what level do they have to be at to be ready to to build and use a seed signer? If if they've got their own cold storage hard wallet, is that pretty much uh, kind of the level that maybe they should be at? Because you you can go on YouTube, you got BTC sessions, you've got multiple tutorials, you've got seed signer, I think specific tutorials on how to build and use these things. But um, you know, just from straight from the the source, you know what what advice would you give for those uh, who are interested? It's it for people who are less technical. It may seem kind of like an intimidating thing to um, buy these components and put it together. Probably the 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 biggest hurdle is that if you don't get a Raspberry Pi with the GPIO headers, the pins that are used to attach it to the screen, those all aren't soldered on. Um, well, there are ways to get around it, but you actually usually buy them with the the pins already soldered. On. So it's 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 a snap together little project. There's three components. There's this Raspberry Pi Zero I've talked about. There's uh, a very specific display and controls that kind of looks like a mini video game console with a thumbstick, a few buttons, and a screen in the middle, and then a camera uh, that attaches to the opposite side of the the little device. Um, it's it's a really simple build, especially as you know with some of the instructional materials out there, and then. I am obviously biased, but I feel as though um, it is a very intuitive device that will teach you a lot more about private keys and creating private keys and then setting up a wallet and the process of drafting a transaction and then applying signatures to a partially signed transaction. I'm using a lot of technical jargon here, but um, we really present these kind of Bitcoin primitives in a way that I think... Uh, makes sense to people sort of intuitive that this process of starting with an online computer, proposing a transaction, then communicating that transaction to an offline device where your private keys are temporarily stored, and then just proving that you have those private keys and communicating that proof back to your online computer that talks to the the Bitcoin network. Um, But if you can use uh, a Trezor or a cold card or a ledger, you can use a seed signer. I need it. Some we we've kind of gotten this reputation as being, you know, a more technical project. Um, yeah, uh, but it's really not. So we have uh, another contributor. I didn't give a shout out to is a guy named Easy that I also met at Bitcoin twenty twenty one. Who his day job is he's a UI UX designer. He's been extremely generous with his time um, and his expertise, and we have a user interface that. I would put on par with anyone else that is uh, very graphic driven and intuitive and well laid out. So I, I would tell your listeners to fear not if you're willing to take the plunge. I think they're really going to enjoy it. And um, if your hardware wallet, for whatever reason, you know, if you're updating the firmware and it bricks or something happens and it won't turn on, a seed signer is an excellent uh, sort of Bitcoin Swiss Army knife to have around because in those hours when you're panicking because your hardware wallet won't turn on, um, if you have a seed signer on hand while keeping your seed phrase and your private keys cold, you could set up a parallel wallet that gives you some peace of mind to see that your Bitcoin's still there, your balance is still accessible, and if you needed to, you could you know, start moving funds or make a transaction. And if you want to order a new hardware wallet, you know, and, and load that, that's fine. But um, it, seats that are can be your only Bitcoin storage tool, but it, it also picks an amazing secondary storage tool 
to either create private keys that you can then use with other devices or, you know, as part of a testing or recovery scenario if uh, the un- unforeseen things happen. Yeah. Yeah. And one last quick point I wanted to let the listeners know about is if you've done everything perfect, if you've um, you've bought peer-to-peer, you never KYC'd yourself, you've always used Tor to use Bitcoin, but then you go out and you buy a cold card or a Blockstream Jade, um, th- those are only used for one thing, for storing Bitcoin. So you are now doxxed, at least in that sense, as being someone who is probably interacting with the Bitcoin network and storing Bitcoin. So keep that in mind. If you buy these, you know, the seed signer parts, you know, none of those are specific to Bitcoin. So nobody will know that as you're buying these individual parts that you are building a um, a signing device for Bitcoin for your keys. Um, but yes, all the links will be in the show notes, but seedsigner.com if you want to learn more, Twitter, seedsigner, and github.com, seedsigner. Everything's easy to find. Is there anything that I missed that you want to uh, let the people know where they can find out more information? No. The only other thing I'd point out is even if people are still at that stage where they're kind of investigating the project and seeing if, you know, does it make sense for me to take a leap and try building one, uh, our main Telegram channel is super active and there's lots of friendly, helpful people in there that that love to not just talk about seed sire, but talk about the trade-offs of different cold storage setups. So, uh there's a link to that Telegram community at seedsigner.com. Um, that's going to be the best place to find it. But if you have questions, definitely check it out. Yep, we don't do it too often on here, but high hash rate, uh, uh, a recommended product or solution, Seedsigner. So if you're thinking about it, check it, it out. Um, Seed, thank you so much for talking to us tonight. Yeah, thanks um, for coming on, Seed. It, it was great. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks again for listening to the High Hash Rate Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at High Hash Rate, or you can hit up Dan at Heartland Bitcoin, H-R-T-L-N-D Bitcoin, or myself, Mike, at Run Dance Bitcoin. That's all one word, Run Dance Bitcoin. If you're a fellow pleb or you just want to shoot the shit with two high Bitcoiners, reach out to us. Holy Toledo!